Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Remaster Podcast, hosted by myself, Abdullah Freeman. And I'm here joined with a wonderful guest, and we'll be talking about a topic that is, you know, doesn't get talked about much. It's hopefully something that can be a great, insightful, and deep conversation. We'll be talking about broken homes, but to introduce our esteemed guest, I'd like to welcome Imam Abdul, Abdul Malik Merchant. Now, the Imam here uh, completed his undergraduate program in Islamic studies, specializing in Islamic culture from Umm Al-Qura University in Mecca in Saudi. And he also realized his passion, that's where he realized his passion for service. Now he works as the Imam and lead chaplain at the Adams Center, working with people with needs. So hopefully I ain't butcher up the uh, <laughs> introduction of your titles, uh, Imam. Assalamu alaikum. No, it's tough, bro. Alhamdulillah. Check out. You're good, man. So like I said today, we'll be talking about the topic of broken homes. And, you know, some maybe it's a series we're going to be doing just talking about because, you know, as uh, Muslim American society and as the Remastered podcast, we wanted this podcast to be centered around real life discussions and situations that are going on in our communities. Right now, this is not to say every home is broken. Right. But it just seems like it seems to be a trend of just. Homes aren't in the prototypical, traditional way that they once used to be, right? You have either uh, divorces happening that causes one-parent households, children swinging between homes. You have mental health issues. You have physical abuse. You have all, d- different types of scenarios, uh, economic crisis. You know, so this is just going to be a series of discussions talking about that and how we can overcome that and how we can work towards uh, bettering of our societies and our homes. Because family is definitely the backbone of society and of anything, right? That's how you get tribes. That's how you get countries, nations, and et cetera, right? So in particular today, we'll be talking about overcoming childhood trauma, right? Unpacking the past, healing the present. And you know, before we go deeper, uh, just real quick, Imam, is there anything else you wanted to add to that that we'll be talking about? Uh, I think... I, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure there is a uh, a more sensitive way to say it than broken homes. But, you know, I apologize on my behalf and our behalf for not knowing what that more sensitive way is. And if because we're talking about childhood trauma, um, we have to recognize that it isn't always because of broken being bro- raised in a broken home, that people can have. Mm-hmm. stereotypical happy two family homes and there still be abuse and trauma that happens um obviously trauma is very complex and not one dimensional and so just want to before we start like make sure that we recognize that what i'm sure it'll come up more in our conversation now that's definitely uh, uh, uh what you said is 100 percent, you know and you know as you craft things right maybe there's certain things like you not that we overlooked it but just the you know, titling of things sometimes you the copywriting. No, no, no. I'm sure <laughs> you know you can only put so many things. You know exactly, I mean? of course, of course. So no, but <clears throat> inshallah it should be a really nice conversation. But you know, to talk about uh, overcoming the childhood trauma, right? Have you ever have you dealt with this issue on a personal level? You know, and you don't have to go too deep, but just have you ever dealt with some type of trauma from your childhood that's affected you currently in your role and like. How does that play out with being an imam sometimes? Oh, I mean, of course, I think with our modern sensibilities and sensitivities and awareness around mental health, for better or for worse, we all have some sort of uh, undealt with emotional um, 
I don't want to say baggage, but undealt emotional experiences that have uh, an impact on us today. You know, we're, we're the accumulation, the tapestry of all of our experiences. And so me specifically, of course, I mean, there are definitely things, even though may Allah bless my mother uh, and the amazing childhood she gave me and my younger sister. I mean, alhamdulillah, it's something we talk about all the time. Despite everything, uh, we were extremely, extremely privileged on so many levels. But there are definitely things that uh, were atypical or based on my disposition, uh, impacted me in unique ways. And I cope in other unique ways responding to those experiences. So uh, whether it was, you know, being someone who's empathic and, you know, sensitive um, and, and not feeling comfortable in my own skin as a kid and then overcoming those things in other ways um, or, I mean, and there, there are a multitude of different ways for sure. And again, we can get into that as the conversation unloads, but not just me, but I think everyone has some of the experiences like that, whether it was just growing up with, you know, I grew up in a single family household. And so it's just me, my mom, my sister. Uh, and so I think a huge one for me is just seeking male attention uh, up until probably I was 30. That was a huge part of my life, having strong male presence in my life. And, and needing that affection and attention from those male figures. So, I mean, that's one of many um, uh, that as I grow uh, and I think about and reflect on my life, but also who I am and how I respond to things in life, it's like, hmm, okay, that's something um, that, you know, we're trying to grow from and trying to become stronger because of those things. Definitely. You know, one thing that you hit on that, to go back like the as we're expanding the conversation itself environment plays like a really huge role right because thinking about um myself and some of the people i knew and how they grew up they may have had two parent households but the external factors that maybe been around because let me say this right may have been around or things that happened dictated a lot of what they did how they viewed things the the certain lack of things they may have had or think needs let me say i should say that they wanted you know, that played a big factor. So I think, let me ask you this, right? Let's let's go into that. What, like, let's define that. What exactly is that childhood, like, trauma, right? Like, like how are we, I mean, it's so much, right? But just today, how would you define it in a simple, like, the very simplest terms we could? Um, I, I'm not a, a psychologist nor a specialist in that. And so I don't want to get, I can't give a technical definition for what trauma is. Uh, but based on how I understand it, it's usually a, a series of unmet needs or abuse that happens to a person. So other neglect or abuse that has an emotional, imp, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That has a consistent or that has like a remaining emotional impact not necessarily ramifications, but the ramifications of that event or those experiences have a lasting emotional impact on the person. Um, wow. And based off that, there are multiple levels that it can happen. When you mentioned um, you could have a two-parent household, but there could be the environmental factor. In, in psychology, there's always been a conversation, is it nature versus nurture? And it's always a combination mm -hmm. of the two in some way. And data shows that it's almost 50-50, right? Um and so the question is, even if you have a two-parent household, how can our dispositions 
allow us to respond to experiences in our lives and our expectations that we have therefore cause there to be a traumatic response or experience to whatever's happened. So let's say you're in, uh, you grew up incredibly privileged. Um, I'll give you me as a good example. We moved recently. Um, and mashallah, an amazing brother offered me his home at a like discount rate mashallah. in the richest neighborhood in Northern Virginia. And the home is mashallah. beautiful. Everything was amazing, but I told him I can't take it, even though the, the price was super cheap. I told him I can't take it because we would be the poorest Pete family in the entire area. And my kids from that will be growing up, looking at a mansion to the right and a mansion to the left. They'll go to school and their friends are going to get Mercedes Benz and BMWs for their 16th birthdays. And I know absolutely that's not going to be our experience. And I didn't want that insecurity <laughs> or, or even trauma that happens within the school mm. to impact my kids. And so even though it was cheaper than what we in- eventually found, the house was absolutely amazing. You know, the barak of staying in a righteous person's house, all of those things, we turned it down because I didn't want trauma. And so the expectations can also be something that sets somewhat of a traumatic experience for someone. Wow. That's wow. Wow, subhanAllah, that's like really interesting to turn down like a really nice house. But like, I guess that's really just an amazing way of having like foresight, you know, because you definitely could have said, ah, they'll be all right. Like, they'll like the house or it's cheaper, but it's like, no, you guys might end up getting older and being like, ah, high school wasn't the best because we lived here, you know, in the surrounding neighborhoods. But I mean, you know, I'm happy you brought up you have children, right? Because, yeah. mm -hmm. No, go ahead. No, no. I, I'm just going to say as parents, uh, we're not only trying to protect our kids from trauma, but we're also trying to make sure that they're set up for experiences that don't lead to trauma. Um, and so that that protective responsibility, that amana that we have as parents um, means that we also consider their emotional needs as well, not just making sure external traumas don't happen or we don't harm them ourselves, but that th- they're safe on every level no that that definitely makes sense and, you know since you brought up that you have children and i was a child once before i'm still somebody's child but you know what i mean i'm not a child again you're a child you were somebody's child before you were a child once let's go into like the the muslim childhood right and understanding like what and as an imam and somebody who studied islam what are like aspects of the development of a muslim childhood like what does that look like what is how is it supposed to be crafted right I know there's a quote, either I believe it's from, I hear, I've heard it attributed to Ali anhu or Umar uh, Khattab anhu about the seven, the three ways of raising a child, like in the stages of the first seven years, you're there, uh, let them do whatever you're nice to them. No, yeah, you're nice to them. The next seven years, you're very disciplined and stern on them. Then the next seven years, they, they have to be your friend after that until forever, you know? So what does that look like for Muslims? I don't think there is a unique or utopian way to describe a Muslim childhood. There are traditional ways that we can see, uh, whether it be the scholarly class of people or um, depending on the type of society. I mean, we are the world has gone through different phases. So you have like agrarian societies where at a young age, people would be working in the fields with their families or they would be doing whatever trade their family was doing. Uh, while some classes, whether it was the bourgeoisie or otherwise, 
their family sent them off to study Islamically. Um, and then you have industrial ages based on where you are in the world. Things are you're going to respond to things differently. So I don't think we can say there's like a a standard Muslim childhood. Um, but I think that quote, and I've always been looking for it. I don't know who's attributed to it either. Um, where we should play with them for seven, <laughs> teach them for seven, then discipline them for, or and then befriend them for seven. Some say discipline. Um, that is more an instruction manual or a, a, um, someone's insight and wisdom as to how we should parent. Um, and it lines up with Piaget and sort of the theories of of development and childhood development that there, are, you know, seven years of childhood, then you have seven years of adolescence, and then you have uh, adulthood or um, young adulthood that starts after that. And so we just have to understand, I think the a major takeaway from that is where our kids are intellectually and emotionally and making sure that whatever we're giving them is appropriate for them in their age at that time. Um, and so for the first seven years, making sure that, uh, they're experiencing love and mercy, uh, and they're being taught things, but then teach them the next seven years when they actually have the capacity to understand, they start to, to understand what's going on and they can start to retain some of that, that knowledge that we're trying to impart on them, but also instilling in them, uh, adab in values, character and, and decorum uh, in values that will keep them on throughout the rest of your life. And, and so I don't think we have a stereotypical way of the quote unquote Muslim childhood, but it's more like an instruction manual as to how we should parent. No, definitely. You know, it's a lot of factors that go into it. Like, you know, just the, you have the core religious principles that keep everything in place. And then you have the culture that's like wrapped around it. Right. Which makes like the whole thing itself. And, you know, I think that the cultural aspects of your, depending on what culture you are, they, they place like a very big part as to how it's seen, how the, the relationship should be between like the parents and the child or how the relationship should be between the child and the community, you know? So for example, let's say, let's use the, let's use, let's say like the black community, right? Here in America. Right. Or in fact, let's not even say black. Let's just say here in America, somebody who lives in a more affluent neighborhood. Right. What are some things that because, you know, you mentioned how your children, they um, you didn't want them to be amongst the affluence because you guys don't have the equivalency to the other people in the surrounding areas. So what are some different, uh, you could say, traumas that could be experienced from living in a more affluent type of society than something that's middle class and then something that's like lower class privilege plays a huge part of one's experience uh and access to things definitely impacts someone but i, I want to be careful to to think that or to say that there are unique traumas for the affluent that there aren't for those that are less affluent um perhaps those that are less privileged would have very visceral experiences with the necessities just because it's more difficult. Um, and that's here in America as well, but I mean, even more so in underprivileged countries and societies, right? And so it's like, I don't have access to food. That could be something that's real, whether it be the black community in America or lower white uh, class communities as well. But like, 
access to food. Because we are uh, less privileged, our parents have to work a lot more. And so you have what was big in the 80s, 70s and 80s, but like latchkey kids whose parents were gone a lot. And so they sort of raised themselves. And um, But even in response to those things, like let's, I didn't grow up that way, right? But my, and my mother didn't either. But in response to those things in the 90s, you start having, um, what's the exact term? You had like hover parents that were trying to protect their kids from everything because of what we've learned from the experience of those latchkey kids that were happening in the 80s. And then after that, you have like snowpile parents who are like trying to push everything away from them. And so it's not even class and, and privilege and what one has does impact the experiences and also the expectations that children's have. But trauma can happen on every front. I mean, abuse happens everywhere in privileged societies and unprivileged societies. And perhaps in more affluent societies, those things are brushed on the rug more easily. Um, or in, in low-income or underprivileged societies, um, perhaps the abuse and the trauma is sort of expected. And so how it's dealt with is done differently as well. Um, but trauma and abuse uh, and neglect, those happen, those aren't dependent on wealth. And it's really about the, the nature of the community and the family and one's unique experiences that really are what we're going to have to consider. So bringing that as an imam, what are, what are, what are some of the things you see that, uh, of course, like you keep every, but just like, what are some of the, the issues you see as far as it comes concerning these youth and the concerns they may have, like some of the, these people? I mean, as an imam, as I see everything, uh, sexual violence, domestic violence, <laughs> neglect, abuse, narcissistic parents. Um, these are just like this week. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I see. And I'm, I'm not being facetious. Like, that's literally just this week. And so you see a, a lot of different things, uh, particularly if you have a bigger community. Um, but I think one of the major things is uh, that is probably a bit more underappreciated than those things that sort of I just named out would be being the child of immigrants or uh, maybe second generation, because there's a, a, a passive in consideration for one's emotions and feelings. So I'll give you a, uh, one of my youngins, uh, Allah bless him. He's probably gonna listen to this. Uh, he's the child of immigrants, right? He's a child of refugees. Mm. And his parents literally mm. saw war. Literally, they saw war. Mm -hmm. The dad tells me stories of like being on the battlefront and there's bullets flying next to his head. When his son's like, I want a job and I'm depressed because I don't have a job. It's very difficult for a dad to understand who's <laughs> and a mom who's have seen that to respond to is like, bro, are you serious? Like we carried your uncle in the car. Like, what, what are you talking about? And so um, there can be a, a feeling of neglect or it, it's some sort of neglect, but a, a lack of empathy, we can say on parents, but definitely felt by children because of just the uniqueness of their experience and an inability to recognize what went through, what the previous generation went through before. Um, and so those are things that I see very, very frequently. Um, 
the reality is that our generation now doesn't have the same appreciation for religion that the previous generation had. And so when parents are like, oh, you're depressed, go read Quran, and the kids are like, that's not working, there is a disconnect there that can easily feel like neglect or abuse on from the parents when the parents are actually giving you a remedy that has worked for everyone throughout their parents' history. Like, read Quran, go make dua, go make salah, go to the masjid. Those things are going to fix your problems because it has for everyone else. But the kid, my generation and younger, so like the 20s and the Gen Z, millennials, Gen Z, and then those that come afterwards, it's like that doesn't work. How we think about religion, how we think about psychology has changed. And so it can, I see that as well, that there's a lack of appreciation for one's experiences, a lack of empathy for one's experiences. Or the inverse is there's um, an expectation that one will accept religion without needing to explain it. And so can I listen to music? Can I listen to not listen to music? Can I date? Can I not date? Um, why, can't, why do I only have to eat Zabiha? Why do I not? And it's like, well, just do it. But it's never been explained to the children. And what that can easily do is cause for another level of disconnect and feeling like, well, religion was forced on me. Religion was something that was never uh, a for source of mercy and love and compassion, but more uh, a dictatorial tyrant that beat me up, figuratively beat me upside my head and literally um, because I didn't do certain things or I thought uniquely um, or otherwise. Lastly, I think another common thing that I see in the community is uh, just uniqueness in personality. Uh, if, a pa if a parent or parents think or function in a particular way, they understand things in a, a certain way, let's say they're engineers, but their child is artistic and creative. And so he doesn't mm, fit yep. the family's mold of what the expectations and how you should act and how you should respond to things. And so maybe school is a little bit more challenging. Maybe um, how they retain things and what they're interested in is different, how they express themselves is different. And so the parent, perhaps, uh, will give preference to another sibling who doesn't have that, perhaps will neglect the artistic nature of one of the children because they are unique in that way. They just can't connect. Um, and so, yeah, those are things that are often overlooked or, or not recognized, light is not shown on them, that can be somewhat traumatic for children and, and for our youth. You know, you hit on several points that, like, I definitely can relate to just from personal antidote, right? Like, my mother, my, my parents, right, they're uh, immigrants as well. My mother was a refugee. My father was here before the war started in our country, in Liberia, right? And my mother, like, just has all of these stories, right? So before, my mother was very, ah, oh, whatever, I'm working, this is like that. Then my mother, when she got sick, she had got a brain tumor, right? And then after she got her surgery, it changed her perspective about everything. She was just like, subhanAllah. Like, her, the way she looked at things, the way things were framed, and as she sat down, she wasn't working all the time. She's seeing society. She's seeing the news, what's happening on the internet, things of that nature. She started empathizing with us more because she's like, subhanAllah. Like, the world you guys live in is completely different than the world I live in, Right. But it takes those certain experiences to happen to certain people. And those who don't, right, let's say she just came, kept working, becomes a big doctor or something like that. Then it's kind of like, 
you're still stuck in that that mold so you don't really get to step out and i think experience like you said uh, alongside environment that's a very big factor that should be uh not overlooked and can dictate a lot of how somebody uh reacts moving forward to different situations and then the other part I mean, that you brought up that's like uh oh go ahead go ahead go ahead I mean, just to, I mean, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I see it very commonly. The children of immigrants, particularly black children of immigrants, um, associating with and feeling affinity toward the African-American community. And whether they're Mm -hmm. like black, like they look like us, or just by culture, they associate with the African-American community, whether it's from uh, vernacular to musical taste and culture and art to dress right and so Mm -hmm. that for immigrants can be very jarring and something that uh biases and racist notions or worries whatever can come out as well that can feel neglectful that can feel very abusive that can be abusive um to children depending on how they respond right and so like you mean like i'm I'm African-American. It's like, no, 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 no. You're Liberian, bro. It's like, no, 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 no. We're Liberian. Don't forget we can speak to them. No, not. And I, I already know, like, I'm sure that's going on in the house. Oh, yeah. It was definitely a factor of that, of just the, anybody who's an immigrant, but in particular, like you said, right, it's just the duality of, like, I was literally given a quote, um, and you can probably replace it with any country. The parents have probably told their child this. When you go out there, you're in America. When you come back here, you're in Africa. You know what I mean? It's like just reacting to that duality of like living in both scenarios, you know? And it was, it had its uh, ways that it was neglectful because it's like, okay, you guys are telling me to do things like this in here, but out there, it's, it's not like that. It's not like that at all, right? But the religious abuse seems to be a factor that, that, um, can also really be, you could say the most dangerous, right? Because religious abuse could lead to somebody being atheistic or suicidal or just neglectful of the dean itself, you know? I mean, let me not say it's the most dangerous. I take that back, right? At least it's very dangerous, right? Not to say it's the most dangerous because you don't want to compare different pain points. But what are some of the things you see uh, religious abuse-wise that happens to youth that... um People come back and they tell you about it. And they're just like, ah, because this happened like that. I didn't do this, you know. I had a friend who was telling me a quote. He said that, like, you know, as he was learning Quran as a child, right, they used to force him always to learn Quran. You have to learn Quran. Memorize this juice. You have to do this. They kept doing it to him. So he said what would happen was as he holds the mushaf, he said he would cry. <laughs> you know what I mean? But not tears of, like, joy, but tears of, like, Ah, uh, I have to do this thing again. So he said when he picked it up again, it like when he holds the Musaf, it's like he's like, uh, you know what I mean? It's a it's a tense moment for him. It's not like, oh yeah, ease, let me recite Surah Al Insan. Okay, we're gonna recite my we're gonna recite no no, it's like, uh, here's this thing I have to do again, right? So yeah. it's, it's it's very It's it's never like it's hard, right? And again, I guess what we're talking about is either neglect or abuse, right? And and, and particularly about one's feelings and, and one's experiences. And so it's hard to say, you can't pinpoint that. But 
if we haven't set up a family environment wherein our kids feel safe to communicate their experiences, or our kids feel safe to uh, express their needs, then it can easily be neglect or or abusive simply because they don't know, they can't connect with us. Excuse me. And so there are a multitude of examples. Um, even me, I never did hibs because the Quran teacher at the time wasn't nice. And I felt he was mean to me. And so when I finished middle school, and it, our, our Islamic school didn't have a high school, and most of my friends went to Hibs and became Hafav, I was like, mm -mm, I'm not doing it. And so that one teacher's bad experience with me uh, never empowered me to feel comfortable doing Hibs, and I didn't go to Hibs school because of it. Um, and so, and I've heard, like my experience is, is nothing compared to what you're saying. People can't touch the Quran. People have a hard time praying. People can't recite the Quran or hear it recite it because of abuse, like physical abuse that happens in masajid, in houses around Quran and Quran teachers. I'm now becoming aware in certain parts of the world that, for example, a lot of the Quran teachers are the ones that are sexually abusing kids. Um, and it's known. So the mother is always that's, and that's staying. Wild. I've... Yeah. And I'm saying that's wild. I, I heard of those recently. I never heard of anything before. Maybe I'm just like naive, but I was like mind. No, I mean, right? our experience in America is a little bit different, right? And so, um, yeah, like the, the mother never leaves, particularly if you have a private tutor coming to the house to do Quran or, or you're taking kids somewhere, the parents, you, particularly the mother, stick around to ensure that nothing's happening. It's mm -hmm. just a part of the society, unfortunately. And so these things definitely happen. Um, and that's on like the abuse side. On the neglect side, the same thing can happen. How are we being, are we understanding? Are we having conversation? Are we explaining um, to our kids what it is and why they're doing what they're doing? Have we helped them understand and process? Do we try to answer their questions? And if we can't point them in the direction of people who can answer their questions so that they can love the religion for themselves, otherwise... Um, and I hear about this all the time. A, a, a mentor of mine told me that it was when he had his daughter that he really started taking Islamic studies seriously because she would ask from a very young age profound questions about Allah, about the world, um, that he just didn't have the tools to answer. And his response to that was, let me go learn so I can uh, and put her in places where she can be nurtured in that way. And mashallah, amazing family um, who now are, she's thriving. Mashallah, may Allah bless them all um, because of it. Mm -hmm. But I've heard the exact opposite has happened where, you know, kids want nothing to do with Islam simply because of it. And we make, uh, usually I've seen that people leave Islam or, uh, no longer believe in God, not out of a disbelief for God or not of a dissatisfaction for Islam, but not actually finding place for themselves within that fold, not finding mm -hmm. place for themselves to to uh, answer the questions they need where they can feel loved and feel merciful, etc. I'll give you, I probably shared this with you before, but I'll give you a very uh, real case of when I, uh, a young man came to me and said, I'm gay. And I was like, okay. 
And he was like, well, can I be Muslim and gay? I said, absolutely. That homosexuality is like 90% a jurisputed issue has nothing to do with theology. Um, and he was like, wait, so I can come to Juma? I was like, I was like, man, you got to come to Juma. And he, he messaged me later on and was like, well, for two years prior to us having our conversation, I stopped praying because I thought I couldn't be Muslim and gay. So he didn't leave Islam uh, willfully and wanting to, but he thought there was no space for him as a homosexual man within the, the fold of Islam, forget the community. Um, and so like how, how we talk to our kids, what conversations we have, homosexuality is going to be a, de- uh, uh, a difficult one, I'm sure, for the majority of our community. But these are questions and things that we have to, uh, very real conversation we have to have. Yeah, those, yeah, that's like a, that's a fire starter uh, topic right there. If you want to get, uh, <laughs> everybody's, uh, what? Yeah, like, definitely. And, you know, I think what you said definitely hits it on a point. A lot of people feel that Islam, um, they don't, they don't feel like it's uh, a space for them. Um, they don't feel that they're able to, uh, or put it like this, a lot of people, because of the tie that Islam has with that it can be merged with your culture, it's a lot of aspects where people, I don't think they can differentiate between what is the Islam and what is the culture. So it's like, perhaps maybe in that guy, is that was that guy like from an ethnic background? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe in his culture, it's like, well, of course, like, it's, your, your people won't accept it, right? At least for the most part, from what we know, right? But he probably associated that with the Islam and thinking, all right, because of that, I'm no longer, my, my community has shunned me, so I'm no longer a part of that community, so I'm no longer a part of Islam. Where it's like, no, you can, it's been situations where, like, you can disassociate with the culture and still be a Muslim, right? We've seen the MBA like, make hijrah away from their people, right? Like, they've, but they still remain, like, Muslims. So, you know, I think that we uh, definitely, it goes back to, like, I guess people learning more, Um like you said, like your friend learning more and actually educating his daughter so she knows and so she has the tools. Yeah, because people people make decisions and people make U-turns. Because it's like, all right, if that guy decides one day that he doesn't feel those feelings anymore, he feels that he it was just a phase, right? Now he's like, well, I can't come back, right? And he's thinking since he associated the Islam with the culture, it's like, all right, well, I, I guess I just can't be Muslim ever again, right? Because I did this thing, but it's like, that's not the case, right? But, you know, so with I, the religious I, I, I abuse... Want, I no, want to ahead. be sensitive, um, and, and I don't think most people are saying it's just a face, but I think the, the larger notion that you're talking about of having a community that's truly prophetic in that, as you know, we have not sent you except to be a mercy to all of mankind. So have a community that allows space for people to disagree, that gives space for people to make mistakes, and then also has space for people to come back and feel loved despite whatever has happened uh, or despite whatever their views may be. And that's a challenge that you see in community, that when people grow up in community, that um, they've seen them grow in all the challenges and all the phases of life that they've gone through. And so we need to make sure that we're a loving, merciful community that gives space to that. On your previous point about separating culture from Dean, 
I think that we're in a very unique postmodern reality where that's ever needed to be the case. Um, where in the melting pot of America or the West, you can choose what cultural identity you want to be a part of. Whereas previously, we had homogenous societies for the most part, at least culturally. And even the places where they weren't, everyone's culture was allowed to thrive in its unique way. And a part of your identity was your culture. And you didn't separate between your cultural practices and your religious practices. Now, for sure, we had questions and and fatawa being asked as to, is this Islamic or not even Islamic? Is, is this permissible from a religious perspective? Um, that has always happened. But where one could say, well, that practice is a part of our cultural identity that has nothing to do with Islam, and therefore I can differ, that's a very unique thing, right? Um in our modern sins, I think perhaps in pre-modern societies, it was, that's impermissible. I'm not going to do it, but I'm still very much a Liberian, a Pakistani, an Egyptian. I'm still this, and I'm not associating with that. And I think the uniqueness of our postmodern Western reality is a bit more nuanced in, in how we approach it and how we deal with it. But still, um, we just have to make sure that our community is truly prophetic in its love, um, in its mercy, um, that allows for people to, obviously we're going to have boundaries and we're going to have um, communal agreements as a community, but still has enough love and mercy uh, where people can choose to be a part of and then choose to rejoin if they want to. And we should be open regardless. Just like in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, they make hijrah away from Quraysh, away from disbelieving polytheists. And when a lot of those uh, people embraced Islam and became Sahaba, Khalid Mulid, uh, and everyone else, the Prophet said, Islam, Islam wipes away everything that came before it. And so, not to say that someone's sins remove them from the deen, but can we have that same disposition? Like, no, khalas, you're choosing to be a part of the community. You're choosing to practice. Um, you know, we're not worried about what you did before. The first part to not what do you that said, can Rachel also Dolan be traumatic. Love that, right? You remember Rachel Dolan? Of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> you remember Rachel Dolan? She loved. <laughs> she loved that. You know, Rachel Dolan's always this. Uh, a uh, white lady who identified as uh, either African or African-American, one of the two, but she had like a whole, you can Google that, but that's just a side joke. But, you know, like you said, uh, definitely having a society that reintegrates people back into the society, you know, and that's one beautiful thing I love that Islam did, especially Islam did it with people who were, who were former slaves, right? Like in the time of the Sahaba, right? It was a process of getting the people reintegrated back into the society, right? A lot of the if a lot of the expiation of the sins, if you did something, was what? Freeing a slave, right? And eventually getting these people to be back into the society or even having a slave, right? You had to give them what you had, dress them as you did. Like, it's a very, Islam is very big on protecting people's uh, uh, honor, right? And that's one thing I really love. But, you know, just real quick also, though, Imam, real quick, as far as the, the uh, religious abuse. Now, let me ask you this. Is this something where you would say that we need to have, so let's say these people come back to the society, these people who have had these childhood abuses, these traumas, right? Let's say these people return, or let's say they've stayed with us the whole time. 
Is this something to where you feel they need to, should we have people in the community specifically dedicated to work with these people one-on-one to help them overcome what they're dealing with? Or is this something you think collectively should be done? Or is this something they should seek to do by themselves individually, like their own personal battles? So I don't look at it as these people, like it's a different, I think it's us. Like there are so many people from us who have knowingly or unknowingly been victims of childhood abuse. Uh, and I say victims because they're like, again, in my community, I know two people who I deal with on a regular basis, probably a third, I have assumptions, but they've never admitted it, uh, both male and female who have had sexual abuse happen to them, right? And so like, it's a very real thing from ethnic <laughs> backgrounds as well, right? And so these things happen. They are happening. And that we're, we're not even talking about like unmet expectations or things that perhaps are like first world problems. I'm talking about physical abuse happens. Um, or people that are victims of secondary, like they saw their mother being abused. They saw their siblings being abused. These things are very, very real. And they're in our community today. Now, the question as to what we, how can we serve and help? The, should they be a part of the community? Absolutely. What should they do? Seek counsel. Um, seek advice and, and counsel from whether it be a therapist or a trustworthy, uh, trained imam, um, whatever the case may be, to help process whatever has happened, to help uh, heal uh, or, or live with whatever experiences we've had. By the way, the, the three people that I'm just are on the top of my mind right now are thriving in the community. Unless they told you, you you wouldn't know. And that's the insidious thing about abuse or about trauma. It's not like you get a special badge that you put on your shoulder that says, like, I was abused or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not something we should, like, be on a witch hunt for either in our community. Unless that trauma is coming back and other people are being harmed because of those things, right? Hurt people, hurt people. So I was abused and now, God forbid, I'm engaging in abusive acts. If Unless that's happening, then we shouldn't be in a witch hunt. We should love and serve and be present for if we if someone um, feels safe enough to share some of their experiences with us, we try to be there for them. If we don't have the skills or capacity, we say, listen, I don't have the skills or capacity, but I will walk with you and accompany you to find someone else. But this is our community. And uh, I'm sure there's a large demographic of our community that has been abused and been victims of different types of abuse and doesn't even know Um, whether it's because they have sort of disassociated and blocked out those experiences and those feelings, or it was just normal. And that's just what happened. And so they don't even uh, associate it with abuse. They've sort of uh, completely looked over it, uh, which has its own challenges in and of itself. And so, yeah, our our community uh, is is diverse, and our community is complicated. Uh, and when I say complicated, I don't mean a difficult. I mean like in a complex way. It's not uniform. And so we have to be, if we have been blessed to not have experienced those traumas, we should be empathic and loving of others who perhaps have so so that like my question i guess let me rephrase it because you're right it's it's us i'm guessing i'm i'm saying more so should we build more 
of the capacities that are centered around with our people? Like, should we invest more into that space of helping these people, right? Because they could seek professional help. But let's say I go and I go to a, a therapist. Now, I'm not saying the therapist is bad, but let's just say it's a therapist who is Chad from, I don't know, New Mexico, right? Nice guy, great guy, went to school, learned this stuff, very certified. But Chad isn't a Muslim, right? So when I go to him and I try to get these different aspects and I try to explain these things, it feels like you're teaching more, which isn't bad because I, I guess it's indirectly Dawah, right? Maybe Chad takes Shahada. But <laughs> you're teaching more so than you're actually able to uh, rectify the situation, at least, right? So should we as Muslims invest more into that space to have so when we do have people who have these issues and things of that nature, they can come to our people who understand the Islam, but who also understand the recovery process, uh, or just the the uh, not, let me not say recovery process, but just how to cope and uh, 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 heal from these things that have happened, right, with our own professionals. Oh, for sure, and I think we're we're doing it. You have Dr. Abdullah Rothman at Cambridge Muslim College that has a certificate, advanced certificate in uh, Islamic psychology. You have the Khalil Center uh, in Chicago, but also in California, um, that is writing uh, a lot and has been writing and also um, trains their own staff. And so like they're fully run by Muslims. You have different types of counseling. So you have like communication counseling, um, so in, in our area, you have Dr. Salma Abu Dair, who has Peaceful Family Project, and um, you have Cornerstone Counseling in New Jersey. Um, you have Ihsan Institute, I think, in the Chicago area that does more like a spiritual counseling. You have so many different people that are doing it, but that doesn't say we have enough, right? Like, we need Muslims in every aspect of life and in every sector that are not just doing it, but are being excellent and not just being excellent, but also um, uniquely trying to consider our um, religious and cultural needs. And so when I say that, because it's very easy to embrace the sort of Western um, psychological worldview and, and deal with the mind simply as a machine or as a muscle that needs to be worked and be exercised. That secular perspective is devoid of a religious theological perspective. And I think we need people that are trained in Islam. We need ulama, scholarly people that are trained in the Islamic sciences that also be, go and become atibba, that go and become doctors and experts mm -hmm. um, in the Islamic sciences as well, that are organically serving people, infusing these, these expertise. Um, and so, alhamdulillah, we have people doing that. Dr. Rani Awad, uh, Human Khazavachi at Khalil Center, Dr. Abdullah Rothman, um, his previous teacher, Allah Hamu Malik Bedri. There's so many people in South Africa that have been doing it since like the 70s. We have people doing these things, um, but we need more. Uh, and so, alhamdulillah, there is a, a plethora of Muslim therapists and there are a plethora of scholars, but we need those to be not only in conversation with each other, but like the next generation, those people are going to do both. And when you find people that have studied Islam, uh, Islamic studies, whether it's traditionally or academically, traditionally uh, I'm biased towards, um, but then also go study psychology mm -hmm. and psychoanalysis and, and all these different, those people 
are able to serve in extremely unique ways and infuse in between not just the physical, but also the religious and the spiritual as well. Definitely, definitely. I, the, all of the people you mentioned, mashallah, those are uh, great people I've heard of and some of their works. Uh, I even have a, a few books, uh, I think, of Dr. Malik Badri, Allah Yarhamu. Um, he was one of the first I've seen uh, speak about uh, contemporary in the contemporary sense about Islam and the psychology and different aspects. I was like, oh, wow, I never knew of these things. Um, so definitely, I agree. We, we definitely need a generation that merges the two because it seems like the need is needed now more than ever um as they did in the past right because that's what the great scholars of the past did it was like they had both and then i won't say it eventually it stopped but i don't know i can't speak to that this isn't a history lesson really but <laughs> so let me ask you this now imam right as we like wind down what would you say like what would you say are some ways to um, at least from the religious perspective and the, the spiritual understanding, what are some ways you can identify if you're having some of those issues in terms of like some trauma you're dealing with and what are ways to cope with it as far as the religious, the Islamic uh, approach goes? What do you mean by identify some of those issues? So you you know, you mentioned how some of these people, like the people you mentioned, the three people who are floating around in your mind right now, you said if you spoke to them, you wouldn't know, right? And maybe if they weren't, I guess, self-aware, they wouldn't know either, right? So I guess I'm just asking, is there a way Islamically we can probe to see like, okay, is everything fine as far as like uh, uh, how I view things or... Is it just something maybe a secular, you know? Is it something that you just have to do? Are, are you saying aside are we and just have that conversation? Other people or within ourselves? No, you within yourself, within yourself. Okay. Um so the people that I'm that I'm that are on the top of my mind have are, are survivors of abuse, right? Like sexual violence. And so they they don't need like sexual violence and incest, right? So they don't need anyone to remind, they know very much of what's going on. Um, I think from a spiritual perspective, we've always had uh, two very important concepts called muhasaba and muraqaba. Muhasaba is sort of a post hoc holding ourselves accountable to see how we're doing. At the end of the day, at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year, at the, whatever time frame we use, how am I doing? Just checking in. What's going on? Um, what do I need to improve in? What am I falling short in? What am I need to do more of? And I think that also, personally, I don't believe that we can separate the spiritual from the psychological. I think that our internal realm, this I think the spiritual is the homogenizing or the, the finding resonance between our external reality and our internal reality. So what we think what we feel and what we know also with what we're doing. If when those two align, that for me is spirituality. And so in our effort to grow, in our effort to to become quote unquote spiritual or more religious, we also need to be aware of how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what's going on. Um 
how's my body feeling somatically? Like, it, um, am I very tense in my shoulders? What are the thoughts and ideas that I'm coming that are coming to mind? And so that muhasaba is just holding myself accountable. What's going on? Um, I'm very stressed right now. I'm feeling burnt out. Why am I feeling burnt out? Okay, what can I change about that? Okay, maybe I can't change. I'm just in a season of life that uh, I can't remove any of those things. But maybe I can incorporate more love, more affection. I can get out into nature, etc. Then there's um, the next a uh, next level of things, which is called muraqaba, being aware, almost live in the moment, awareness of what's going on. Now we tend to talk about that from the uh, strictly spiritual perspective. So like being aware of our intentions and why we're doing different actions or whatever. But again, you can't separate that from the ego or our nafs or our feelings. And so if I'm someone who's insecure in myself, Abdul Malik, right? I'm insecure in myself as an imam, for example, and I go somewhere and my teachers are around. And so now I want to interject into every conversation to sort of feel validated in me being an imam or in my intelligence or whatever spiritually that's bad because there's an arrogance there the desire i'm desiring to be seen right but also emotionally i need to be aware of where that's coming from why do i keep interject interjecting right now where is that coming from in me what emotional um, insecurities do I have? And I can't fix the riya unless I also am aware of the emotions that I'm having so that I can work on that. So, okay, Abdul Malik is a little bit insecure around his teachers, around other people. Why is that? Um, he, he didn't recognize that uh, until he was much older that he's actually a smart person and he doesn't feel validated. Okay, well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed me with this. I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, is fully aware of, and so I only need Allah to please me. But at the same time, maybe I would like my mentors to recognize me as well. And so maybe I need to have more conversations with my mentors and my teachers about who I am. And that's on a very, very low level, but that's what we're trying to get to. Um, and use that example, <laughs> very real example of myself, um, in any aspect of life, whether it's I'm finding around certain people I'm uncomfortable, whether it's um, when certain people say certain things, I respond in certain ways. Why am I responding in those ways? And as the very famous ether goes, whoever knows themselves knows their Lord and whoever knows their Lord knows themselves. And so in this process to be better, to to get to know who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, we need to know who we are so that that connection is one that uh, ideally we're overcoming our egos and we're struggling to, to, to grow. Right, wait, uh, can you repeat that last part? It kind of like, uh, cut out real quick. No. So man, Arafa nafsahu, Arafa Rabbahu is the very famous, famous quote, whoever knows themselves knows their Lord. And so if we're trying to be better Muslims, if we're trying to be religious people, we can't neglect also who not self-knowledge, knowledge of self um, and the inner workings of ourselves, not just, okay, did I make my five daily prayers? Did I fast Ramadan? Am I giving sadaqah? Am I good to my parents? But also, how am I feeling? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And the more that we can sort of dig into that to know who we are, we are made intimately aware of how magnificent Allah is juxtaposed to ourselves, but also what I need to do to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more. And so 
in us trying, what can we do in that muraqaba and that being aware of ourselves, but also muhasab as well. The goal, the intention is to be aware of ourselves so that we can work with and overcome whatever shortcomings and deficiencies we have, or just whatever experiences that are impacting us. And so just like the example that I use, my insecurities, um, I have to recognize that and be on aware of that so that when things come up, I'm okay and I'm, I'm dealing with it. I think that's a, a wonderful, wonderfully stated. I think that's a, a discussion we should bring you back for. We should have a get real one-on-one, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> getting real with yourself, real life conversations, you know, uh, because I think that's definitely one thing most people um, avoid, you know, those real life conversations with yourself to really know how things are going and what am I really facing? What am I really feeling? How am I really, like, really, not what I think I am, but how do I really act? How am I towards my family, towards people? How am I towards my neighbors? Like, what's my actions like? You know, I I think those are things definitely we as people avoid, you know, because sometimes you find out things about yourself that you're not not so fond of, right? And you, you find out, like, the one thing most people hate is, right, like, to be wrong, right? You're like, man, I thought I was like this, but I'm wrong, but... It's way better to be wrong in this life than to be wrong <laughs> when you're standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on Qiyamah, right? So it's definitely something that we need to do as people, you know. Um, Jazakallah khair for, sure. for the I mean, uh, discussion, Imam. No, go ahead. I mean, if I could just add one last point, you know, um, Sheikh Yasser Fahmi, one of my teachers, mentions how um, we've sort of made our desires our God. Atajarulahu hawa. Or have you seen the person who has taken their desires as a god? And we live in the age in which the emotions and desires have sort of taken preference to the sense that we, we worship them in a sense. Like how I feel is of we live in as uh, forget his name. Uh, one historian said we live in the age of feelings. And so how I feel is prime to everything, mm-hmm. not based on reason or logic or anything. But also a friend of mine. Saad Yaqub, Allah bless him, he mentions, uh, well, we were having a conversation about that, but he said also we're extremely fearful of our emotions. So the God that we've created for ourselves is not a loving, merciful God that we're trying to, uh, and, and I mean this in the um, sort of, uh, I don't mean God, but like the, the ideal that we've sort of held up for ourselves, the thing that we've made such an important thing for us of our emotions is not one that we actually love and want to get to overcome and to work with, and but it's something that we're scared of, a tyrannical figure. And so because of that, we don't want to have these difficult conversations. Well, what are my insecurities? What are my shortcomings? Who am I? Um, what experiences have led to me being where I am today? We much rather medicate it or um, ignore sort of what our experiences are, and that will always leave gaps for problems in one way or another whether it be on a from a religious perspective or an emotional perspective and you know that 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 right there in itself is a form of abuse right that's self-abuse right it's a, it's a form of neglecting your, uh, yourself and the things that actually are happening in your life directly towards you you know and that that plays a fact into this as well because maybe I guess maybe it's uh, it happens later on because when you're a child, you're not really as cognizant of those things. I guess let me ask that as well. The the two uh, 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 the two uh, concepts that you gave us about checking being in the present in the moment and then checking on yourself as well. 
could that be something that's applied for children or is that something that you would do when you're more like uh, older, like after maybe the ages of puberty or, you know, how would that, how does that look for who, like who, who specifically is that for? I think it's going to depend on the, the intellectual level of a person, but I think as parents, it's training our children and providing a safe place for them to check in and communicate and be aware of first and then communicate their emotions. And so I'll just, again, use me, but like ask my kids, how are you feeling? What's going on? You're clearly upset about something. Can you tell me what that is? Um, We have a pact. I've had it with my wife before we had children. If you're honest, I promise you I will not get upset. And so just tell me how you're feeling and we can have a discussion about that. I promise I will not respond in an aggressive or negative way. And so creating space for them, but then also helping them process. Uh, My son is 10. He's going through this uh, unique, (laughs) but not unique phase where he doesn't want to talk about his emotions. He wants to just bottle it up. Uh, But as an empath myself, and he's me without trauma, (laughs) it's, oh, no, no, no. Listen, (laughs) he doesn't have the tools right now to talk about or process those feelings. He's just frustrated. He's just mad. And so because I know him, providing the love and the affection so that he feels loved and and affection, but also a place for him to converse and tell you what it is, his feeling, which requires a lot of, um, it's not easy, right? Uh, Just (laughs) last week, my son came to the room to to give me a hug. He's very affectionate. I love, bless him. and I thought he was coming to snitch on his siblings because I heard them like arguing somewhere else. And so he came to give me a hug. And I was like, nah, man, get out, get out of here. Get out of here. You just want to tell your siblings, nah, get out of here. And so he just like sort of leaves. And I wasn't paying attention to, uh, I wasn't being that aware of myself. And my wife was like, yo, you hurt his feelings. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, he just left. She was like, nah, you ain't see his face. He was like crying. Like he wasn't happy. I was like, nah, nah, come back, come back. And he was, he was in tears. And I was like, Bubba, what's going on? He was like, I just came to give you a hug. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Give me a hug. I'm so sorry. I thought I misunderstood. I misread the situation. Mm-hmm. But like, there has to be a space for him to feel what he's feeling, for me to apologize. I have to apologize to him because I have done something to him in this situation. But then also for him to express how he's feel- feeling and that we have reconciliation about that. I have to apologize. I have to recognize the the error that I have made, I have to make sure that he's okay and he understands that he can always come to me and express his feelings. I have to make sure that, because so easily we can lose the trust of our children and they no longer feel like, well, dad's not present, so I'm not going to be there and I'm not even going to come to him about those things. I don't want that personally for my kids. And so to go all the way back, when do we do muraqaba and muhasaba? Uh, depending on their age level, it's sort of helping them. But I think from as soon as they can communicate um, from day one, there's a level of helping them understand what's going on. We're doing, we're in the act. Baby's hungry. They are, they're crying because they're hungry. We figured it out. I remember when my son was first born, he had a specific cry for diaper, a specific cry for hunger. I have to be aware of what that is so that I can serve his needs. Because if I don't, there can be a neglect there very, very early on. Just let him cry. He'll cry it out. It's not important. Um, 
my one of my daughters was colicky from a very young age and so she just had bubbles in her system it was she was in pain and she was crying all the time i could be annoyed shove her in a room and shut the door um but well, how does that instill in her or what does that instill in her for later on in her life and so from day one i think infancy we're teaching where we have to be aware of their feelings so that when they can start communicating two three four years old what's going on are you aware of your feelings the feelings are not something bad we all have them how do we deal with them uh and how do we connect those to life even and so like personally i'm not uh, in the belief that we shield our kids from problems or difficulty uh i think they should they should know what's going on and so if there is something that's going to be disappointing i'm not going to hide it from them i'm going to tell them hey this is disappointing um it's about to come. Be ready. I'm here to help you deal with that disappointment so that it's one of many reps for when they get older. And so how do we deal with disappointment now? How do we deal with the feelings that we're having? Let's have conversations about that. Let's check in um, and just teaching them how to be in a habit of doing that. You don't have to put a specific label on it, I don't think. Um, but as they get older, it yeah, we can teach them these are tools that you have in your toolbox from a religious perspective um, that if done with the sincere intention or the correct intention becomes a ibadah, it becomes a form of worship. And so not only are you growing, but you're growing in closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, fa, yeah, wallah. No, the, the, the point you brought up, Jazakallah khair, it, it, it really, like, I, I really didn't understand that until I got older. The, I, this is why I like good akhlaq is very important, right? Because you telling him to come back, you hugging him, and you apologizing, it sets a standard in his mind. Oh, like, this is something you can do. So if I mess up on something, oh, I'm sorry, I messed up, and you apologize. And that's a habit he can carry with himself moving on. And it's like, maybe some of the things that we may pick up that aren't so good, let's say, if, uh, yeah, yeah, you're just like, ah, oh, get away from me, man, you just want to do this, or ah, oh, whatever, it is. you keep doing that. Children, they're going to soak that in. So eventually him or your daughter or somebody or whoever child seeing that from their parent, they would copy that. Ah, oh, get away from me. I don't want to do this. Ah, oh, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to do that like that. Stay like this. So it really just goes to show that like, it's really why having good character is important, but also it like, it's, it's, it's tied to what uh, rem uh, implications he can have moving forward. And the other thing is right. The keeping it real with the children, you know, like having those real life, conversations and letting them know what actually is happening in the world you know like you brought up about the parents who the, they snowplow they try to hide everything from their children they block everything it's like eventually either they'll do the same with their children or they're going to want to know what's on the other side of this hill and when they go they're going to go full force right they're not going to go a little bit they're going to go ah let me i need to find out right and who knows what they could run into? Who knows what they could deal with? And, you know, you see that a lot with, like, uh, uh, children when they get to college, right? In particular, like, uh, specifically with young ladies a lot, right? When they get to school, they're living on campus. It's like, I never had this freedom. And some of them, not saying all, but some of them go overboard, right? Even the guys, too, but in particular with the young ladies that I've seen from my experience, right? They go over, overboard. But it's like having that balance of the conversations showing them like what character you're supposed to have and then letting them know about what's actually going on in the world 
plays a lot of factor. I think that can help uh, avoid a lot of potential traumas or neglects and things of that nature with the individual. Bro, you're not going to get me hung on this podcast. So it's not just the ladies. And there's a cultural reason. <laughs> uh, there's a cultural reason as to, <laughs> as to why it got there, right? Uh, you'll find in our community from a very mm-hmm. young age, the boys are allowed to do whatever they want. Uh, and the girls, we put them in this bubble. Exactly. We, we want to protect them or whatever. And so, yeah, it's more poignant when we see our sisters doing it for multiple levels, like all oh, hijab, no hijab. And so it stands out more. Um, also, I think there's naturally a, a, a desire to protect and love and care for our, our women for a multitude of different reasons. It stands out more when the girls do it, to, when they get to college. The reality is the boys been doing it since day one, since high school, since middle school. They've been wilding out. Um, <laughs> I remember a family I grew up with who the when the girls hit third grade, they had to wear hijab out the blue. And it was like, wait, what? And so, and then one of the girls got caught with a boyfriend at school. She got pulled out of school and put in homeschool. I know for a fact her older brother had a girlfriend and was going to the club. I know her younger brother would pull up to the basketball court with his little scooter with a girl in bikini on the back. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Like, you wilding right now. And so that's really the issue that uh, – we want to shelter our sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying we should also open the floodgates and say, hey, experience. I don't think either one of those scenarios are right. I think that we should have very real conversations. Um, no, 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 no. And, and be thoughtful about how we're interacting with our children. So um, because the reality is, we uh, to your point, though, right? Like the reality is we can't protect them from the world. Um, and if we don't have real conversations and we don't have a controlled, slow leak experience as to what's going to happen. Uh, and we're not aware of our children, their emotional abilities, their needs, their ability to be disciplined, et cetera. Then we're setting them up for failure. If we're setting them off to college, guys or girls, and we know they're not disciplined, we know they don't have a good study habit, we know whatever, whatever, then it's partly on us. We didn't train that. We didn't teach them those things that are from a young age. And then we sort of just let sent them to the wolves in a, in a culture that we know is incredibly uh, shahwani. It's very, very much, a, you know, fulfilling one's desires um, and whatnot. And so for sure, I think we just need to be aware of what we're doing with our kids. Um, and, and to your other point about um, good akhlaq and good adab, um, I think it's really um, practicing what we preach uh, and trying to and trying to do our absolute best, right? We've all been given a specific, we've all had experience, this is a good way to tie it home, we've all had specific experiences. The more that we can become aware of those experiences, the more that we can help our children. So just to give a final example from myself, uh, I remember during the pandemic, we're all, I have a bunch of kids, alhamdulillah, and we're like, we're, at that time, we're in a very small apartment. And so we're like sandwiched in with each other. And naturally, me and my wife would get frustrated sometimes. And sometimes, like every other parent, my wife would like raise her voice. And it would have a visceral reaction to me. It was like the equivalent of when in the movies, when someone scratches the chalkboard and like everyone's like, ah, like that's how I would feel. And I didn't know why. All I could say was, babe, I don't know what's going on, but please don't yell at the kids. And I was talking to my mom about it one day, just on a walk. And she was like, I'm sorry. 
And I was like, I'm sorry for what? Like, what you talking about? And she was like, as a single mom, after I had your sister, I was just so stressed. I would yell at y'all sometimes. And I was like, nah, like, I'm not like, you know, she's like, no. She started crying. I was like, no, mom, wallahi, like, there's no, no beef. I'm not upset. Uh, I'm not. It's okay. You, you did an amazing job. But my experiences that I didn't realize that I was having f- sort of made me respond to these things in that way. So I have to be aware of those things. My childhood experiences, one, and how I parent my kids, but also how I am as a husband to my wife. Because I could get mad at her for just expressing herself, her frustration, but because of my trauma, it's visceral. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. So now I'm stifling her ability to express herself or to parent in the way that she is. When she's not being abusive, she's not being extra. And so I think we just have to be aware of what it is that we have experienced, what it is our goals with our children are. Like, why are we trying to do these things? Why are we locking up our girls and sort of not caring about our boys? Why are we... um, trying to protect them from the world? And is that even a practical step? Like, okay, we can put them in Muslim school. We can homeschool. We can put them in a Muslim bubble and blah, blah, blah. The reality is one day they're going to have to do with that. So whether it's at 20 or 18 when they go to college or 24 when they get a job, we live in America. And so do we protect them so much so that, okay, maybe they go to a local college, right? They're, they don't ever experience it. They get the job, someone winks at them the wrong way, and then they're off to the races. We have to be careful about what it is and how we're helping our kids develop. Every kid is going to have their own disposition and have different strengths. And even in one family, one may be allowed to do things while others aren't um, and having conversations about those things. But we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it easy for us, man, and, and, and allow us to be good parents mm-hmm. and allow us to raise our children in a way that's pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but also is loving and, and merciful um, and empathic that, allows the next generation to build on the feeble attempts that we're making now. I mean, I mean, you know, it's very, it's very, this, like I said, this conversation is going to be a a series of conversations because this, this topic itself is just so, it's such a, it's so much to unpack from it. So many different aspects, so many different things. And, you know, we don't want to make this like those uh, three hour long podcasts. Right. But (laughs) <laughs> it's definitely the best ones, a lot bro. to talk about. So I, I thank you once again for coming on. Those are definitely some My of pleasure. the best ones. But you know, attention span. But we'll see. We'll probably we'll probably see in the future moving forward. I don't know. I talk with uh, the team, but you know, I think today some of the things that we took from in this episode are definitely being able to identify, right? Being able to sit and have those conversations with yourself. That self uh, reflection to see, okay, what's going on? What's actually happening in my life? And seeing other different factors such as experience and the environment and how that plays a portion as to how you do uh, come up and some of the uh, how that may uh, lead to some traumas and the different neglects and how that plays a role in your life, you know. And it's very it's very interesting just to sit and to think like we all live in this world, but it's like everybody has a world of themselves that they live in as well, right? Like <laughs> you could be next to somebody. And not know for a second, oh, this 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 lady or this gentleman, regardless of religion, right? But you won't even know. Or somebody you're praying next to, somebody you see, they smile. Because, you know, that's one thing Muslims we love to do. How's it? Oh, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. But it's like, this brother could be crying on the inside. We don't know what's actually going on, you know? So 
broken uh let me not say broken homes because we defined that we're not gonna call it that but the copyright it just it sounded nice you know headline grabber (laughs) (laughs) overcoming childhood trauma definitely is uh something that uh uh we and also protecting those who are under us right those of us who have children protecting them and making sure that we're setting good examples with good character with uh uh um being uh being attentive to them, right? And attending to them and their needs and not just thinking, you know, you could do it on autopilot of, yeah, get out my face. You need food. You need money. You got a place to stay. Okay, fine. You go to school. No, it's more to it than that, you know, showing them that you care for their feelings and how they are and helping them, you know, in the overall point, just helping create that system for people, you know, how to deal with and overcome these things that you are facing, right? This system that you can always revert back to, right? Because you will never, you know, I was, re- I'm reading this book about, uh, it's Dr. Malik Badri, Allah Yarhamu. Um, he, uh, took Z- uh, Zaid Al-Belki's, uh, book about the, uh, cognitive sciences and the healings of the mental, uh, uh, uh things of that nature. And one thing he talks about in the book, even though this book may help you, uh, with ways of dealing with the things you are facing, as a human being, you'll never be able to escape all of these things, right? Like, wh- whether you don't face uh, 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 any serious major mental health uh, crises or things of that nature, you still will feel anger, you'll feel grief, you'll feel anxiety, you'll feel sad about some things. Like, it's going to happen, right? And just having that system that you can revert back to to always protect you and help you get grounded back to the uh, uh, at least a base level right to where you're able to rationally deal with things and cope you know and strive towards making improvements in your life you know so jazakallah khair thank you imam for uh what you shared with us here today um for the you know for the next episode we got uh, some things coming in store we're gonna be talking about uh, ashura inshallah um wow the islamic calendar moves pretty fast it's already muharram about to come up is it Muharram today? Is it yeah. already, or is it like close? I don't think it's not today. No, not today. I don't. It's, I need to do a better job. We're almost. Ha- we're like so the nineteenth of Dhuhr or something like that. I always catch the uh, the months at like Ramadan and Rajab are the only two months I feel like I actually <laughs> keep up with. You know what I mean? Um, as far as the Hijri goes, I need to do a better job of that, but. Y'all, thank you for listening to the Remaster Podcast. It's your host, Abdullah Freeman, and we will see you guys later, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>